Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Mallard. We're ready for this week's edition of 48 Days Online Radio, where I scan through questions that come in during the week from those of you who are living real life out there, dealing with the ups and downs of this volatile work environment, but finding opportunities as well as finding challenges. So we're going to be dealing with those in the next 48 minutes. Here's some of the things we'll be covering today. The issue is that I end up switching jobs every two years. I don't feel like it's something bad for my career. Am I crazy? Well, here's another question. When I find that new job, how can I offer references when the people I currently work with and for are so toxic? If I don't have managing or organizing or responsible for, what should the rest of us that have only worked entry-level jobs put on our resume besides an exhausted list of duties? How about this one? How do I battle fear of success? I don't mind failing at all, but thinking of success tends to freeze me up. Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Here's another one. How does one justify leaving a job that allows them to give so much to others? And how do you recover from failing at a venture when you were so sure it was right for you? Well, if any of those strike a chord with you, stay with us. We're going to try to unpack those, go through and deal with what our responses to those real life challenging kind of questions. If you've got a question, you can shoot it in to just go to the podcast link on 48days.com and it'll ask you if you want to ask a question, you can just hit that little link send it in or just shoot a question to ask Dan at 48days.com. I value the questions that you continue to submit. I mean, that is the fodder for writing blogs and doing podcasts and writing books that I do. I don't want to get to the point where I write those living in a vacuum somewhere or just uh, reading books in a library. So it's the real life situations that I have the privilege of interacting with you on each day that allow me to continue hopefully offering encouragement and inspiration to people who are looking for just that in the challenges that we all face. Incidentally, thanks for all the Aristotle designs. Now, if you're a longtime listener, you know that we have a carved cedar tree and the approach to my office here at the sanctuary in Franklin, Tennessee. And we had a contest, golly, last year, I guess, to name that eagle and ended up with the name Aristotle. Now I'm ready to do a dramatic landscape design around that because it isn't such a critical position as you drive in here. So we want to really emphasize that. And again, I draw on the the brains of you listeners and readers, you know, which I've always done. And, and frankly, I don't understand people who don't use those resources. You know, when I have people contact me and they say, gee, I want to, you know, write a book. What should I do? And I I asked them, you know, have you read 48 Days to the Work You Love? You know, have you invested $10 to to read that book? You know, have you read No More Mondays, where I talk about that at length? You know, have you come to one of our events here, like Right to the Bank, where we talk about that? Um, You know, it's a little uh, disconcerting for me when somebody asks a question that we've dealt with in so many different ways. 
Now, not, I mean, the questions that I get here are new and fresh every week, but also with the things that are going on at 48days.net, I mean, we have about 9,000 people there now, I guess, who are actively involved. They create their own groups. So if somebody's interested in inventions, man, jump in there and see what the people there who know more about inventions than I do have to say about that. So there's so many resources to get good help and assistance today that nobody ought to be left standing flat-footed in the cold with with no ideas or no ways to implement good ideas. So get involved. But I've, I've used the people who are my customers. I mean, if you really want to break it down, uh, that's exactly what I've done. I mean, I've asked customers, what should I charge for an upcoming teleseminar? And I've had times when I've charged three or four times as much for a teleseminar over what I intended to because I asked the potential participants in advance what they'd pay. And they'd say, well, gee, you know what? 10 bucks, I wouldn't take it seriously. At 129, it's a little steep, but you know, $69 would be a good landing point. And I've done exactly that. I mean, I've followed my customers even in helping them, having them help me shape my business model. And you ought to use the same kind of resources for what it is that you're developing. But when I got ready to remodel this old barn on the property that we purchased behind our house a few years ago, I sent out a note to the newsletter readers at that point didn't have a podcast or a blog, but just newsletter readers and said, I've got this old barn. Give me some design ideas. And I think we offered like a hundred dollars or something as a reward. I got amazing ideas in architectural designs and oil paintings of people's recreation of this old decrepit barn into what they thought I would want it to look like. And I used one of those who we did award a prize to. And we used that design, I mean, really closely for what we actually did on the barn to turn it into the sanctuary. Now we have Aristotle. We want a, a landscaping design. And I have gotten, again, just amazing input. I mean, two scale drawings. I mean, I've gotten blueprints FedEx to us in big tubes for what people suggest that we do there. Some very detailed plans. And I will this next week, I'll be going through those and we'll select our winners from that. But I appreciate your willingness to, to share your brain power so freely like that. Uh, that's the way that we all ought to be doing it. And um, in doing so, we all learn how to be more successful in whatever it is that we're doing. Well, we've got some things coming up here. We got this week coming up, uh, one of our sold out right to the bank events. A lot of you have asked about that and at our now grabbing spots in the April or the August and October, I think it is events. Yeah. August 4th and 5th and October 13th and 14th are the other dates for that event. But this one sold out about two months in advance. So we are, I think, at about half capacity for those two remaining this year. But that obviously is a hot topic. Got some questions today we'll be dealing with about writing, how you can turn your writing into income. And I'm always happy to uh, address those. I've been excited about what writing has afforded me the ability to do these last few years and eager to share those principles any way that I can. Well, here's our quotation for the day comes from Henry David Thoreau out of the conclusions to conclusion to Walden. 
one of my favorite writing pieces, but he says this, I learned this, at least by my experiment, that if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. Now, there's a a lot of great theology and philosophy kind of embedded in that great quotation, but you need to start living the life that you want today, even if you think you don't have all the circumstances in place to do that. I mean, we, we make incremental changes in our lives. We don't make dramatic, today you're a pauper and tomorrow you're a king. I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, we make incremental changes along the way. We make what uh, Darren Hardy publisher of Success Magazine, calls The Compound Effect. I just finished listening to the entire audio series. That was a gift to me from Kent Julian, one of our coaches down at Atlanta. He gave me The Compound Effect, and I just finished listening to it. I listen to works like that when I'm on the treadmill in the morning. Great way to use the time wisely. Um, I've got a TV built into the treadmill, but uh, the TV does not offer the kind of value that listening to inspirational programs do. So I never turn that on. I listen to things that will inspire me and call me to new levels of success. But Darren calls that the compound effect. That's the way we make changes. But you can start living the life that you want today. Don't wait until circumstances are right for you to Start making that change. And then as Henry David Thoreau says, success will show up in unexpected ways if you in fact start living the life that you want. Well, Telly says, now this, she's from um, Las Vegas. I'm 29 years old. I have six years experience working as a web developer for companies. Never had a problem to land a good job in my life. The issue is that I end up switching jobs every two years. I don't feel like it's something bad for my career, but am I crazy? Well, <laughs> we people may look in from the outside and think you're crazy, but that's okay. But let's take a look at what you're describing. You're a web developer. What has happened to web development, tools, techniques, technology in the last five years? I mean, it's changed dramatically. I mean, if you got a degree from the finest university in the country, five years ago in web design and you're resting just on that for your credentials, you're toast. If I'm going to hire you for a web developing position or job or task, I want to know what you've done in the last six months. I want to see that. Uh, that's what I'm going to be interested in. So it's a very rapidly changing field. So that alone opens the door for you to be changing positions frequently, not unexpected at all. If you are a web developer and you go to work for a company, you know, chances are there's a heavy development task on the front end. And once that's in place, then it kind of levels off. It's like getting a plane off the ground. Once you're off the ground, you pull back in a throttle because it doesn't require as much push. I mean, we had this last year, major development work done on all of our 48 days sites. Well, that required a lot of time and effort to get that done. But now that it's done, we're more in a maintenance mode. Now we, we never just rest on what web development has been done. It changes daily, but certainly not with the same intensity that it did to make this dramatic reconstruction that we did last year. So if you're task is essentially completed at a company, it's not unexpected at all that you would move on. And at 29 years old, I mean, we're told that people in their 20s, in our culture, the average job tenure is 13 months. 
So if you're staying 24, you're screwing up the stats already. But it's not unexpected at all that you change. And no, it doesn't mean you're crazy. When we have a upward progression in our career in today's work environment, it is not uncommon that that involves moving from company to company. That's much more likely to be the case, and in most cases is a healthier career path than staying with one company for 20 years and simply moving from position to position within that company. Doing that is very likely to move you away from what it is you do well, where you ultimately end up in a position of incompetence because you've moved away from what you've done well. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of times we reward competence in a position by moving that person out of what they do well into something where they have no experience and are not likely to perform as well. Well, enough on that. Let me move on. Nicholas says, Dan, I I want to say I'm a big fan of your podcast, your book. I saw an article on Smart Money titled Five Weird Ways to Pay for College. In the article, one student at Bentley University started his own company called Boston's Designated Driver. My friends and I are out of college and want to start our own designated driver's company. We tried to contact the student who started the company in Boston for advice on what he did with no response so far. Do you have any tips for us on how to get our company started? I tell everyone I know about your services. Thanks for what you do. The link to the article is blah, blah, blah. It's smart money. And I did go and look at the article. And it talks about, yeah, the guy who at Bentley University started his own company as a way to earn extra cash. Now, there's, there's several factors involved here. I mean, I'm a big fan of kids in college doing something to generate income so they don't just borrow money and come out of college with insurmountable student debt. Um, so there's a lot of things you can do, a lot of creative things you can do. And I talk about them on here frequently. You're now out of school and you want to start a designated driver service. It, it, let, me, let me walk you through some of the things you need to look at. It's not a business that I can get real excited about. Now, you know, just think about the logistics of what you're talking about. You'll be driving other people's cars. So there's... Uh, an enormous liability issue that you're going to have to cover. I mean, you're going to have to have liability insurance that deals specifically with the fact that you're jumping in and out of other people's cars and driving around town. You're dealing with inebriated people, an unruly crowd. You are looking at something that has linear income, meaning you do it and get paid once. I mean, you're not going to be put on retainer. You're not going to create residual income where the business is generating money while you're sitting on the beach somewhere. If you're sitting on the beach, boom, the money stops. Now, unless you have employees, but that gets complicated. So you've got linear income rather than residual. You're in something that's very time and effort intensive, rather than results intensive, you are focused on evenings and weekends. So you're going to have to give those up of your own. That's going to be your working time. And you're going to be able to service a very small geographic area. I mean, if you've got a designated driver program, I mean, even if you're talking about a medium-sized town like Nashville, I mean, you couldn't cover East, West, North, and South, you'd have to be covering, you know, a five block area downtown to make it work logistically. I think you got a whole bunch of strikes against you. I think this is a very complicated, a very restricted business to try to develop. 
Now, prove me wrong on this. I mean, this may be like FedEx, you know, where he flunked his paper and then he went out and did it anyway. You know, the teacher said it was too complicated and logistically he could never make it work. And, and that is a complicated idea, but he did make it work through having systems that were duplicatable all around the country and around the world. So that what you need to do is, is do a business plan. I mean, you can go to, you know, I have links. If you go to the 48 days worksheets, I have a business plan there. You can just open that up and just work through it. See if you can make it work on paper. I mean, you, you've got to be able to believe that your business works and be able to see it on paper before it's going to be a reality. Um, get this month's issue of ink. I mean, the April 2011 issue. I mean, pick that up. It's got a whole bunch of things. It's got a whole section in there about college students that develop businesses while they're in school that create significant income. It's the issue that has Rob Kalin on the front cover. If you don't recognize that name, Rob Kalin is a 30-year-old who started the website Etsy, E-T-S-Y. It's a place where artists and artisans can sell their wares there. He started the company, backed away from running it when it grew so exponentially, brought in another CEO for several years, and now he is back at the helm as CEO at the ripe old age of 30. Looking at him, he looks like he's about 14, too, which doesn't help any. But anyway, one of those success stories, which we can all learn from. Um, Incidentally, just as an aside, when you're looking at business ideas, you ought to be getting Success Magazine, Inc., entrepreneur, business startup, fast company, some of those, you ought to be devouring those as the leading edge overview of what's happening in real life businesses. You can learn from those and avoid a lot of mistakes. So anyway, uh, Nicholas, on your business idea, get a business plan, see if you can make it work on paper. If you can do that, hey, knock it out of the park. I think it has a lot of restraints on this business idea. It is not a business idea that I would find appealing um, so you, know, you ought to be able to not just see an idea that you see in paper. You know, if you like this idea, you like the idea of being involved in, you know, moving cars or whatever, come up with 20 other ideas that may be similar, but remove some of the challenging parts of this. I mean, you could rent a downtown lot and simply, uh, rent it out then for parking on the weekend where you charge 10 bucks for a special event. You know, you rent the whole lot for a a thousand bucks for the weekend and you charge 10 bucks a piece. Boom. You know, all of a sudden you've got something that's pretty scalable that you can ramp up. And there's a lot of ideas that are kind of related to what you're talking about. When you're talking about, uh, for one thing, I I wouldn't want to have to deal with your clientele. Well, here's a note from Todd who says, Dan, this is not an April Fool's joke. There is an eagle who laid an egg in February and it is expected to hatch today. Here's the link. Now, I have it up on my computer right now. I've had it up for a couple hours. And yes, uh, Todd, when you sent me the note, I think you sent that on like April 1st, April Fool's Day, there was one of the eggs did hatch on Saturday. No, I'm speaking on Wednesday as I record this. So one of the eggs actually hatched on Saturday, one hatched on Monday. The third one has not yet hatched. I'm watching this on Wednesday and I'm watching this and it's amazing to watch. The eagle has been up 
She stood up a couple of times. So you see the two little eaglets that are in there. They're running around and running over the other egg. And the other egg looks like it's got a crack in it. It's got to be hatching. But but thanks for the link. I, I love watching these things. Yes, these it is a real thing. And everybody knows how much I enjoy eagles. So thanks, Todd Stoker, for the link. Dan, this comes from Ralph. who Dan says, I'm a longtime listener to your podcast. And I've read your your books and given them out. I'm a woodworker residing in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I have been writing freelance woodworking articles for national magazines for the last 10 years. Last year, my day job dried up. I took that opportunity to expand my writing and make a living at it. I provide written and video content to woodworking companies. I create video product demos, write newsletters, blog posts, and how-to articles. Now, Now, think about all the things that he's doing here. So he's obviously loves woodworking. So instead of just trying to turn out birdhouses, you know, or front porch chairs, he's providing written video contact. He creates video product demos, writes newsletters, blog posts, how-to articles. I have also a, I also have a book deal to write a book on the furniture at the Juliet Gordon Lowe house, the Girl Scout Museum. Well, how cool is that? Wow, I have a high school diploma, but no college degree. I was able to take my passion and create a living out of it. If you would like, I would be happy to participate at one of your upcoming Right to the Bank events. My story of how I got into freelance writing and how I am working to build my client base is too long to outline here, but may be of value to your attendees. If this is of interest, here's my contact information. Thank you for that, Ralph. I mean, we're right on top. I mean, we have a right to the bank event started tomorrow. I have, you know, all of our agenda outlined. We've got a tight agenda. It's very full. I've got speakers that are coming in. I've got a ghostwriter who's going to be here. I've got a publisher from Thomas Nelson Publishers and then a well-known author who's going to be here to share his story as well. But I will I will share your email with our crowd, but just because it's inspirational to take something like woodworking, which in that, that's a great example of something that in its normal application provides limited, low ceiling, linear income. It's just something you can't get paid enough for the time that you put in. Most people who do woodworking, you know, and then they go to flea markets and sell what they make, they realize they're making two or $3 an hour. It just doesn't work. But if you take your intellectual expertise, your knowledge of woodworking, and you start doing video product demos, writing newsletters, blog posts, how-to articles, and all of a sudden you duplicate a significant income and go on from there, wow, rock and roll. I mean, that's exactly how it ought to be done. You know, I get a lot of notes that reference my writing, and I'm grateful for those and always humbled by the things that I get. Um, now, certainly, I mean, uh, I mean, in all honesty, I mean, you have to realize not everybody just knocks it out of the park because they read something that I wrote. There are people that read what I wrote and say, gee, Dan, you need to know that your principles don't work in the economy today. I mean, I get those. Certainly. Um, I get material or responses that say, gee, all it was was a a bunch of little, you know, light, fluffy, do good, think positive principles. Or I get Notes that say, gee, it's just a bunch of Christian gibberish. You know, I should have never wasted my 10 bucks. Now I get those too. Now those are rare, but, but I mean, being realistic, I mean, we have to realize there's a broad spectrum of, of people out here and the same ideas don't impact people in the same way. But 
I also have been blessed to receive thousands and thousands of notes from people that say, wow, this really helped me figure it out and knock it out of the park. Here's an example of why I write. I did a a blog last week on how I have had a lot of mentors over the years. And I listed people like Earl Nightingale, Napoleon Hill, and Norman Vincent Peale, and um, Dennis Waitley, and Zig Ziglar, and Brian Tracy, and people like that. I said, you know, a lot of the mentors that I've had, I've never really met face-to-face, but they're my mentors nonetheless, because they've been so open with their expertise that I've been able to access that through books, audio programs, seminars, workshops, and so on. So they have been my mentors and me helping develop new areas of expertise that I wanted to build. Well, here's a note that I got. Dan, you actually have been one of my mentors. I've had many profound ones over the years, including Les Brown, Wayne Dyer, Marianne Williamson, Michael Beckwith, Deepak Chopra. But when I was really unhappy in my job of seven years in 2009, I used to go snuggle up in bed with your book, No More Mondays, and read it and reread it like a Bible. I soaked up the ideas and took your words to heart. I dreamed of actually doing what you said was possible in that book. I took the plunge during a recession, even though I was afraid. I now work for myself, doing the same job I was doing, but now I call the shots. I make more money now than I did when someone else was pulling my strings and I have more self-respect, a flexible schedule, and I'm happier than I've ever been. I tell everyone about your book. I still open it up now and then so that I stay inspired. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for your note, Marla. I mean, that. I mean, how affirming, I mean, how exciting is that to know that just simply something that I wrote inspired somebody to move forward like that? I mean, that's why those of you who are writers ought to be writing. If you have a message that is exploding inside you, get it out there in some kind of a format so that you can share it with people. And as I have continued to write more, I have reduced my personal coaching I mean, there's no secret about that. I still interact with lots of people because of questions that come in and I oversee a lot of coaching requests as we work with other coaches to help people get the face-to-face, nose-to-nose, at least ear-to-ear kind of help that they need. But I've increased my writing because with writing, it's increased my potential audience dramatically. If I coach full-time, I could see you know, maybe eight or 10 people a month. When I write, then it has the ability to go to thousands. And I really appreciate the opportunities that technology allows us to expand if we are, in fact, writing something of value. Well, Steve says, um, thanks for an inspiring podcast and book. I'm developing a plan for an online business on the side, but I'm desperate to escape my present job. The boss hides in his office while I'm surrounded by toxic co-workers. When I find that new job, how can I offer references when the people I currently work for and with are so toxic? Well, uh, now, there's a couple things, Steve, here in your note. I'm developing a plan for an online business on the side. I mean, if you're serious about that, and it really is a viable business, I mean, how long is it going to take you to have that up and running where that is your primary focus? I mean, do you really intend to keep that just as a sideline forever? I mean, if it has even a little potential and you're doing it online, it ought to be scalable enough to ramp up. So that is your primary source of income, I would think. So if you are looking to escape your present job, you ought to be able to have a timeline. How soon can you have your online business be your primary focus? 
you know, if, if it's going to take five years, and I would question why that would be the case, but if it's going to take five years, then yeah, maybe you need a core career, a job as a transition vehicle in the meantime. But if you think that in six months, you're going to have that ramped up, where it's really providing the income that you need, then it would be unwise to look for another traditional job in that period of time. Just keep the one you've got, even if it's you're working with toxic people. If you know that you are looking at a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, just stay there and continue that. Now, as it relates to your actual question, though, and we can answer this, you know, how do you ask for references when the people you work with now are so toxic, you don't want to ask them for references? Don't use them. I mean, go back to a previous job where you had a better relationship. Use somebody in the community, you know, a friend from the Chamber of Commerce, somebody who's known you for 10 years. You don't have to have references from your current job. As a matter of fact, most people don't. Because if they're doing a job search while they're currently employed, they don't want people at their current job being called as references, even if they have great relationships there. The other thing is, you ought to be doing a job search and not list references at all. You ought to be doing your job search. Now, you should know who you're going to tap on the shoulder for references if they are asked for. But you have to be realistic about how infrequently references are ever an issue in making a new hire. Now, just think about it. I mean, you you can do your job search. You do interviewing. People are going to make the decision whether or not they want you based on that interview. References are after the fact. References are never contacted until the decision has already been made that they want you. So all they're looking for is just a little confirmation and that kind of fills in the blank. Yeah, they did check with references, but references, I've never known references to make the decision about whether or not to hire a person. So it's really a small degree of importance as you do your job search. I mean, I've known people who have done a job search, uh, interviewed, uh, gotten hired, and then they called and found out that this person, you know, got out of prison six months earlier and it didn't change their decision. They had already made the decision. They wanted this person anyway. I mean, there's some, and of course you're, you're going to choose references, people as references for you who are going to give you a good reference. I mean, everybody knows that. So nobody puts a whole lot of importance on that. If somebody really wants to do a a background check, they're going to do that on their own. And that doesn't come from just people that you give as references. So just don't use the ones that you've got in your current job. Just get out there and do a job search and be ready to go. Vanessa says, my question is, how do I go about finding the clothing mainly from the vendors out here to furnish my store? Now, I suspect that she may have asked me a question in the past. I don't really recall the specifics of what she's doing, but if she has a, if she's selling clothing and wants to have vendors as a supply for that, how do you find that? There are a lot of ways to do that. I mean, I resell books, so I want to go to publishers of books. And I do that and can do that readily. I mean, I have distribution agreements with Viking and 10 Speed Press and Doubleday and, of course, my own publishers, Random House, B&H Publishing, but a lot of different publishers where I have distribution agreements that give me essentially 50% off. You can go to any manufacturer, whether it's for books, clothing, widgets, or, you know, barbecue sauce, and do the same thing. You're going to get... Typically that, but if you're working with clothing, something where 
you don't have time sensitive issues. Now, yeah, we have styling changes, but those come and go. And, you know, there's a whole lot of margin, gray margin in that anyway. But when you have something that is not going to have a shelf life is what I mean, or it's not going to get old like a jar of salsa might, I would go to liquidation companies. So if you Google clothing liquidation, you're going to find a whole bunch of options. I mean, clothing has markup almost like jewelry does. And really books have tremendous markup margins as well. The printing cost is very, very low compared to what retail is. So we're not talking about working with just 50%. So if you want to be a clothing reseller, I would go not just to the manufacturers, but to liquidators that may buy closeout inventory or buy out of bankruptcy, you know, stores that are closing. I mean, there's a whole lot of sources that you can have for clothing where you get, where you buy for 10 cents on a dollar rather than 50 cents on a dollar and increase your margins. But just, you know, you can, you can jump online and you'll find things. I mean, people sometimes question, well, how can I sell books, you know, for $8 on our website that I paid a dollar and 50 cents for when anybody can find the same book for a dollar and 50 cents? Well, they can, but that's not the way shopping works. I mean, I don't mind telling people, you know, what my resources are, but if somebody is purchasing 48 days to the work you love, and then I have a book in there and there's a little book that we had a couple years ago was called how to make use of a useless degree. And it was one of those great title didn't sell well, wasn't marketed well by the publisher or the author. And so it went into liquidation or went into what in books are called remainders. And I purchased that. I think I paid like a dollar and 32 cents for those. We bought a whole lot of those and I had it as one of our $8 add-ons. But see people, when they're shopping for 48 days to the work you love, they see another book in there that's fourteen ninety five, but we've discounted it to $8. They just added it to their shopping cart, just like your shopping experience when you're at Target or Walmart, when you're walking down the aisle and you need um, bath soap. And you see that they're having a sale on washcloths. You don't think, well, I'm going to go home and get online and see if I can, you know, buy those washcloths somewhere else. No, you're already in the store. You just throw it in their cart. I mean, that's why stores put the items that are most commonly used at the very back of the store. I mean, why don't they put milk, eggs, and bread right at the front counter? Because that's what a whole lot of people go into like a convenience store for. No, they put those at the very back knowing they're the most common because it forces you to walk by all the other things that you're likely to just throw in your cart anyway because you're there and it's convenient. People do the same thing on online stores and that's the way we do with books. And you can do the same thing with you know clothing. If you draw people in because they're buying Banana Republic clothing, Well, you can have a whole lot of other things in your store that people will just drop into their shopping cart in the same way once they're shopping in your store. Chris says, Dan, I'm currently working on an exit plan for my current factory job. I'm 34 and it's only the second job I've ever had. My first job was an entry level job with a major retail store. My current job is also entry level. I noticed in the resume examples There were several action words like oversaw, managed, created, had responsibility for. What should the rest of us who have only had entry-level jobs put on our resumes besides an exhausted list of duties? I've never had the opportunity in either one of my jobs to do anything that would be considered an accomplishment. Thanks for your help, Chris. 
Well, Chris, here's what you can do, but I'm also going to challenge you a little bit. I mean, look at what you've done in your community, at your church, at your kid's school, in your backyard. I mean, look for any extraordinary accomplishments that you've had in things where you want to continue doing that. So let's say that you're, you've had an entry-level job and really nothing extraordinary there, but last year you coordinated the fundraising project through your child's school. You coordinated that. That's an accomplishment that you can list. I mean, you you may coordinate the uh, sharing driving responsibilities to take kids, you carpool, so you take kids to school. So you coordinated the transportation logistics. Now, we don't want to get grandiose and misrepresent, but look for things that you've done in your real life. I mean, accomplishments on a resume do not have to come from positions that you were paid for. A lot of times in working with women who are re-entering after perhaps uh, children are grown, empty nest has come along or an unexpected divorce. And they think, well, gee, I haven't worked for 20 years, so I have nothing to put on a resume. Well, sure you do. A resume should highlight accomplishments that you have shown to be true. And those can come from any area of your life. If it's, if it's in a volunteer position or uh, working with a nonprofit, that's just as legitimate an area of accomplishment as in a job that you've been paid for. Now, if you don't have anything in your personal life, you don't have anything in your work life that has been extraordinary at all, then it really kind of begs the question, why would somebody want to hire you? What do you bring to the table that is remarkable, that is extraordinary? If you don't have anything like that, then you're in a really tough position. You need to be getting something that it is you do that is really good. I mean, you could start a blog and you start blogging about eagle watching. I'm still watching this eagle sitting on her two little eaglets and one unhatched egg as of right now, but it looks like it's going to happen anytime. But I mean, you could start a blog about that. I mean, if you... Start a blog. So you make minimum wage in an entry level job, but you start a blog about an area of interest. Or if it's about woodworking and you start doing little video demos about woodworking, like one of our previous um, listeners here that I talked about. And all of a sudden, you know, you got 10,000 people in a little community of in your affinity group and they read your blog every day. That's an accomplishment. That's something that has value when you go into the workplace and you can describe that and you'll get opportunities that are based on that alone. So you've got to have something. I mean, you can't just, uh, I mean, really the fact that you've had a couple of jobs and you've done nothing extraordinary there. I mean, if you have the desire and you have unique skills, those ought to find opportunities. People don't stay in entry level jobs and just stay there. I mean, they rise out of those because they showed their ability to add extra value. And you ought to be really looking for those even in your current job. Maurice says, from Valdosta, Georgia, says, Dave Ramsey said something on his show. He talked about looking for work that meets your salary needs. He had to let go of an employee who was hard to work with because she wasn't earning enough to support her family. Is it not wise to take a lower paying job while searching for more lucrative and satisfying employment? Yes, it is. If I am working with a, I've got somebody right now who's been in the banking industry and used to making eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 a year. Way too much time has passed. 
16 months has passed and he has not found another opportunity. I told him last week he needs to go to Home Depot and put on an orange apron and start creating income. Do that. A job search at this point with all the things that he's got in place does not require 40 hours a week. And if it does, he needs to be putting in another 30 hours week working, creating income anyway. So yeah, a lot of times in a transition, I'm going to recommend get out there and do something, even if it is a lower paying job, keep yourself in the game. Funny things happen to our minds. If we've been out of the action for a extended period of time. You don't want to let that happen. You want to stay in the game. So yeah, you get now, if it is a position where you know, it's not going to create your monthly budget needs, then you're going to be needed to need to be doing something in addition to that, or be very aggressive in your job search so that the low paying job doesn't continue for a long period of time. I mean, you shouldn't be in a low paying job for more than two or three months maximum, if you really have skills that are applicable, you know, in a higher paying position. So, you know, it's wise to take a lower paying job for the immediate situation, immediate transition, but you shouldn't be staying there over a long period of time. I mean, either you've got to learn how to lower your needs and to match what you're then making or you need to be moving on because that's going to create a sense of unrest for everybody involved if you get a paycheck and it doesn't even you know, meet the mortgage payment. So it ought to be a temporary kind of thing. Now Donna says, how do I battle fear of success? I don't mind failing at all, but thinking of success tends to freeze me up. As soon as I published my book, I got so scared that I did nothing for months. Okay. Well, Donna, I mean, you you know that not doing anything on your book, I mean, that's a real red flag and one that's near and dear to my heart. (laughs) I mean, I don't care if you had the biggest publisher in the world. Uh, If you don't do anything on your book, it's going to go, it's going to stay really flat. Why is it that we battle this fear of success like we do? What is it that holds us back? It's the heart afraid of breaking that never learns to dance. It's the dream afraid of waking that never some great reminders in there. Do you know, why do we battle success? Failure is a very safe position. There's no question about that. And in many ways, what you're saying, Donna, is absolutely true. It's easier to handle failure than success. I mean, there have been books written on that. Many, many great quotations about that. It really is. But you don't want to stay there. You know that you don't. You know, you know that even though success may be intimidating, it's very attractive. So you need to be asking yourself, you know, why is success a safer place? What do you expect would happen with success as opposed to the safety and comfort and predictability 
a failure. Now, in this, we have to really be honest and look at the mirror when it comes to this kind of thing. I mean, I've known women who were afraid of losing weight, even though they knew how to do it because they knew they would become more attractive to men. And they saw that as intimidating and frightening. Well, be that honest with yourself. I mean, what would happen if your income tripled next year or this year? What would happen if your income tripled or quadrupled? What new decisions would you make if that were true? What if you were selected to head up a committee rather than just being a member who sits in the back of the room? What if you were asked to teach a class at your church or through the Chamber of Commerce? How would you handle those things? I mean, you can decide in advance how you would respond to those things. But we ought to really be able to identify the things that hold us back from success. I'm listening right now to the old classic series, Think and Grow Rich. It's just an amazing, amazing overview. And it really does go through and identify some of the obstacles of of success, because this is very much an inner kind of game. And I hesitate to, to just lay out, you know, do these three things, because it's very personal, very individualized. And I don't want it to be seen as just, well, you know, just ignore the reality of your situation and just do, you know, PMA, we used to hear all about, you know, positive mental attitude, you know, stinking thinking, you need to check up from the neck up and all those cliches that we hear, and can give lip service to it. I know that it's, It's a more serious transition than that. But I think it's something that all of us can do. And I do, in in working with people individually, often identify the fear that comes from potential success. What is it that's holding you back? And that is a major obstacle, the fear of what success would bring. So look at that. Have fun with it. Talk with others about it. Talk with others about your fears. You'll find that they have the same kind of fears. The things that lead us to success, you know, are things like persistence, determination, talent, faith, self-discipline. I mean, those are things we can all develop. Those are not things we need to go back to school for, get another degree on, get certified in. They're things that we can develop personally if we really take that process seriously. Take the approach of those things, the development of those as seriously as you would the development of a business or the writing of a book, and you can see those things melt away. Now, there are some old cliches that I really like, like the old W. Clement Stone, do what you fear and fear disappears. I think there's some truth in that. When I first started speaking, I was nauseous. I was terrified, but I continued doing it. And the more I did it, the more affirmation I got from audiences, and the easier it became. So there is some of that. Do what you fear and fear disappears, but look at it head on and be confident that you're going to overcome your fear of success. Put together a plan. You know, sometimes we can create a real to-do list, a plan. If you wrote a book and you haven't done anything because of the fear, Go through a plan. I've, I've got, I'm going to present in our Right to the Bank event here, 48 methods for filling your funnel, for getting marketing for your book, 48 ways to do that. You don't need to do all of them, but you need to do four or five of them and do them consistently. So choose which ones you're going to do and then create a schedule for yourself. So it's just like brushing your teeth. You're going to do these things and all of a sudden the success will fuel itself and you'll see yourself walking out of that. 
Let me hit one more real quickly. We got lots of them here. I'm going to skip down. Mike says, how do you recover from failing at a venture that you were so sure was right for you? Mike, you, you have to believe that failure is part of the process. It's unrealistic to expect just linear progression upward where you start with nothing and all of a sudden you're successful. It's going to be more like a roller coaster. I've never seen it really played out any other way. Expect the ups and downs, learn from the downs, and realize that that is a necessary part of getting to the success that you want. Most entrepreneurs bomb dramatically two or three times before they really have a success that they knock out of the park. I mean, surely there are, you know, the uh, Mark Zuckerbergs who start Facebook, you know, those stories like that. The reason we talk about those so much is because they're so extremely rare. For every one like that, there are a thousand other people who end up as multimillionaires, but had a whole lot of bumps on the road along the way. So just uh, see, I mean, Rick Pitino, the great basketball coach says, failure is a fertilizer for success. So when you fail, recognize, aha, I'm closer than I was. When I talk to people who are coming out of corporate environments and they say, I really want to be in business for myself. And I, I ask them, gee, what have you ever done, you know, in business for yourself? Well, nothing. I've never done anything but just get a paycheck. That really concerns me about them making that transition. When I talk to somebody and they say, oh man, I've been in three or four multi-level marketing things, you know, I made a bunch of money here and then I bombed, you know, I did this little mail order thing, gee, I got this little franchise, it bombed. That's when I get excited. I think, oh my gosh, you're a great candidate for now identifying a good idea and moving into that with success where you can knock it out of the park. I mean, that's what I look for. I would rather work with somebody who has had some failures than somebody who has had this perfectly clean path and they always got a paycheck, never missed one, never did anything on their own. And now they want to start a business. Wow. That does concern me. Welcome the failure that you've had and realize that it is putting you closer to the success that you're ultimately going toward. Well, if you got a question, just go to the podcast link at 48days.com. Be happy to introduce that in one of our upcoming podcast. Thanks for your involvement in the 48 Days community. Jump in 48days.net if you're developing ideas and you want to link arms with others who are doing the same. Enjoy this process of finding or creating work that is meaningful, fulfilling, purposeful, and profitable. I know you're doing it already. Have a great week. Enjoy this time of year. Everything is bursting out with new growth. You can do the same.